front. Oh, there we go. Hey friends, welcome to Are You Up? Uh, my name is Sammy. If you're first time here, I'm the campus minister. And so this semester, if you've been with us, you know we're working our way through the Gospel of John. And we're asking the question, basically, what does it look like for Jesus to love a people like us well? And then what does it look like for us to follow him into loving others in the way that he's loved us? We're calling our series Love in the Ruins. And just to set us up, if you like to plan, here's where we're going the next three weeks. Tonight, I'm going to jump a little bit ahead of uh, a little bit ahead to a passage in John chapter three, and then the next two weeks, we're going to jump back to Nicodemus, and then we're going to talk about the Samaritan woman in the third week. But tonight, I want to look at a passage that I needed to hear um, and needed to wrestle with uh, this week in the last couple of days, and it's John three, verses twenty-two to thirty. John 3, verses 22 to 30. It's in your handout. I'm reading from the ESV. I'm going to read it for us and then pray. Here's what John writes. He says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing John the Baptist at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John, his disciples, and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, Jesus, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Let me pray for us, and we're going to dive into this text for a little while together tonight. Let's pray first. Father, we thank you that... Uh, You have loved us so well. Father, we thank you that you care for us. You know our frames. You know our weaknesses. You know uh, what what sin has done to us. You know our brokenness. You know our neediness. And Father, you have not turned away from us. You have not abandoned us. You have not left us to our own devices. And you have not told us to get it together and then come and pursue you. That Father, instead, you sent your son, Jesus. And there is good news for us tonight. That those of us who know something of our brokenness, those of us who know something of the sin that lurks within our hearts, those of us who know something of our neediness and our weakness, that, Father, you have the good news of Jesus for us tonight. That we are loved with an everlasting love, and more than that, we are loved in spite of our failings and our failures and our sin. That you have given us the grace of being loved and known as we are And that you have given us the gift of your son who lived and died and rose again and even is ascended into heaven now praying for us, looking over us, caring for us in ways that we feel and see and ways that we don't feel and don't see. And we praise you and thank you. And so, Lord, I pray that as we look at this text together tonight, that you would be the one that would send your spirit without measure, that we might see and hear and taste the goodness of Jesus. We pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. So years ago, one of my favorite SNL skits of all time is a skit with Will Ferrell. It's from, I think, basically either late 90s or early 
2000s, and it's Will Ferrell, and he comes home from a long day of work. He's kind of a businessman, and he sits down with his wife and daughter, and they're uh, basically the, the skit is they're eating uh, their dinner together, trying to kind of make awkward small talk as a family. And basically, you know, something will kind of come up. They'll start shouting at each other. And there's this moment in the skit, and it's hard to know if this was written or if it was one of Will Ferrell's beautiful kind of just doing it on the fly. But he starts shouting, I drive a Dodge Stratus. I'm an important person. I drive a Dodge Stratus. And it's so ridiculous that it just makes you laugh when you watch it. But I love it because when I watch it, I see myself in it. That here's this man, whatever his day has been like, whatever his work life is like, whatever his life is like, he is desperately clinging to something to make him feel important, to make him feel known and loved, to make him feel like something. Uh, Dean Martin, the old Frank Sinatra of that crew, he had that song, maybe you've heard it, You're Nobody Until Somebody Loves You. And it's that idea that we are all looking to something for something, even as ridiculous as a Dodge Stratus, to make us feel important. To make us feel beloved, to make us feel like something. And I think about that because I think that's exactly what we find in this text with John the Baptist's disciples. Is they are looking for something to make them feel like someone. To make them feel loved. To make them feel, we could just say it, joy. The freeing joy of being known and loved, of mattering, of being worthy and important. And you and I, if you're like me, and you can admit it about yourself, we have our Dodge Stratuses. Whether it's a relationship, whether it's a certain GPA, whether it's being part of a certain circle, whether it's just the affirmation and approval. This came home to me afresh. We did fall conference this past weekend, and I was tasked because I wasn't at the meeting of being the MC for the weekend. And it brought it all fresh home, home to me that I live for, in ministry, your approval. I want to be liked. I want people to laugh at my jokes. I want people to think, man, I want to know that guy. And of course, I'm doing it you know, in this huge conference of 400 people and feeling my nakedness. Of number one, why do I look to something so stupid as the approval of 400 college students to make me feel like someone? And number two, if you're a Christian, why can't I just find that in Jesus? Like if you're like me, you're asking this question constantly. Why can't I just be content and be joyful in what I have in Christ. And I think that's what this text is all about. Jesus, through this text, he's inviting us into the deeper joy of being known and loved by him. He's inviting us into the deeper joy of him being enough for us, of of stripping away our our Dodge Stratuses, if you will. I'm going to use that probably a couple more times. And inviting us into the fullness of the riches that we already have in Christ. And he does that by inviting us to do three things in this text. Here's the first one. If you're ever going to know joy in Christ is full and rich and true that no one can take from you. Here's the first thing you've got to, that Jesus is inviting you to. He's inviting you, he's inviting us to repent of our jealousy. To repent of our jealousy. Look at the text with me for a second. When I look at these disciples, basically the situation is this. John the Baptist has had this incredible and successful, numerically speaking, ministry. People, Jesus has sent folks his way to be baptized and discipled by John the Baptist. And here's disciples in the course of that ministry. They're looking across the Jordan. And here's this guy, Jesus, this other rabbi that they've heard John talk about. And they say in the text, look, John, rabbi, all the people are going to him. And this starts with this argument with the Jew over purification. And I so see myself in these disciples. They, they no doubt love theology. 
They're critical of other ministries. They're jealous of the success and the growth of other ministries. They're insecure. They're self-centered. And all they really want is success. All they really want is to be something, to be significant. And the part of this text that is so, I think, if you're like me, that's so hard and crazy is that they're even jealous of Jesus. That the ministry that they're jealous of is the ministry of Jesus himself. One of my favorite short stories, I was an English lit uh, major for my first semester, and then I transfer. I didn't transfer, or actually I did try to transfer to Clemson for a week, and literally made it one week, and then got homesick and came home. It's a long story. Ended up back in Carolina, tried education, and that wasn't for me, and then picked psychology, and then just basically had to graduate. So that's, here I am. And so, but in the, I do still love English, and wish I'd stuck with it. One of my favorite short stories is Fyodor Dostoevsky, if you're a Russian, um, if you happen to be a Russian lit person, yeah, probably not many of you, but if you are, props. He writes a short story called The Dream of a Ridiculous Man. The, the short story basically is about this very self-absorbed, um, probably an alcoholic man who's contemplating killing himself. And he, he's uh, run out of vodka in his apartment as he's made this plan to end his life. And he goes out into the streets to find a new pint. And as he's there, this little girl, who he can, he, who's a toddler, he can't quite understand her, runs up to him and is tugging at his knee, tugging at his, you know, his pants. And he can tell she's lost. And he can tell that, that she's in really afraid and needs help. And instead of taking the time to help her, he shoves her away. And he goes back up into his apartment to carry out his plan. And as he's in the apartment, he falls into this basically a daydream. And the daydream goes like this. He's, he's gone into this pure and uncorrupted world. And he's experiencing the joy of these people who genuinely love each other. Like they genuinely are kind to each other. They genuinely want what's best for one another. And then as he lives in this world, he begins in his self-absorption and his selfishness to corrupt it. He begins to teach them how to lie. He begins to teach them how to manipulate the truth for their own advantage Here's how Dostoevsky describes it, because it nails me, and I think it nails you. Here's what he says. He says, Each of them began to love himself better than anyone else, and indeed they could, do, they could not do otherwise. Every one of them, this is the part that kills me, every one of them became so jealous of his own personality that he strove with might and main to belittle and humble it in others, and therein he saw the whole purpose of his life. We call this branding, right? In other words, Dostoevsky is hitting at this idea that you and I, part of what sin does to us is we live almost instinctively for ourselves. I think about, uh, I've mentioned before, my wife and I just rewatched The Office and there's that scene, I quote it all the time, that always hits me, where Michael Scott's season one, where they ask him the question, would you rather be feared or would you rather be loved? And he says, I want people to be afraid of how much they love me. And I'm like, yup, that's my entire ministry. <laughs> Not really. Uh, but we do that. Like I was thinking about, I've done this with students. I remember being at Georgia Southern uh, years ago. And these two students that were like Christy Knuckles disciples who were PCA connected. And I was like, surely we're the only PCA game in town. They're going to come to our ministry. They're going to join our praise team. And we're going to crush this campus. 
And of course, that fall, I mean, it didn't even take a fall. They might have visited like a week, and then they ended up crushing it for BCM. And I remember telling her, my wife one night, we were laying in bed, and I was like, Why, what is Jesus doing? Why won't he just let me have these PCA students that are going to transform my ministry into being something? And I remember, I'll never forget the question she asked. She said, Sammy, do you think Jesus is disappointed in where they are? And I, in my heart, I was like, yep. He sure is. He wants them in RUF. He told me in a dream. Um, but the reality was I wasn't loving them. Because when we're, really, when we're really loving our friends, when we're really loving each other, we don't really care where they end up, church-wise or ministry-wise, as long as they're somewhere where they're being preached, where the gospel's being preached, where they're learning to love and follow Jesus, and they're learning about the love of Jesus. Um, you know, but at heart, we are jealous, and our jealousy eats us alive. I think this is my theory. I've never understood this. Just try me out here for a second. I've never understood why the killer's Mr. Brightside is still a thing. Because I feel like, like I was in seminary when and this is like years ago, and I'm like, really, this song is still a thing. But the chorus, I was reading it today. That chorus where they talk about um, jealousy, uh, casting saints into the sea. I was like, what does that mean? So I like did that Google search of like, what does meaning song lyric meanings, <laughs> and it was pretty fascinating. But the idea I think is he's saying I'm swimming, watching this relationship unfold that I think is mine. I'm swimming in jealousy. And I think the image that we have in this text is, Jesus. here's Jesus, they're by the Jordan River, he is baptizing people, people are coming to know and love him and follow him. That's the whole point. Like, that is why I want you to be here, that's why I'm here. But the reality was, they were swimming in jealousy, even of Jesus himself. And that's the first question for us, is who do you want people to love? Who do you want people to love? You or Jesus? Who do you want people to be, as the kids say, the goat? I was going to say rock star, but that doesn't really work. Who do you want people to be loved and praised and admired, you or Jesus? Now, please don't hear me saying a basic human need is the need for approval and affirmation. That's a good thing. We were supposed to, in love, give that to each other. But you know what I'm saying. What is the goal of your life? Is it about you or is it about Jesus? So first, we've got to repent of our jealousy. Second, we have to rest in his sovereignty. We have to rest in God's sovereignty. So this is where John, this passage gets fascinating to me. So John, we know from the rest of the Bible, he has his flaws. There are times where he seems overzealous. He definitely seemed like in his choice of diet and clothing, maybe a little edgy. I don't know what was driving that. He had some reason for it, I know. Uh, he seems, and John mentions prison. I think part of that is when John, if you know that passage, when he's in prison and they and he uh, ask for basically is Jesus the Messiah I think there's a part of John that probably does get a little disillusioned because Jesus as he fulfilled his ministry wasn't doing the things that probably John thought he should be doing at some level so we know John has his flaws but I think in this text he is offering in this spirit-filled moment an invitation to what true humility looks like he is showing us kind of the foundation and the roots of true humility that's why verse 27 if you're looking at it I love what he says He says, listen, as they come with their jealousy and say, look, look at Jesus. His ministry is blowing up and ours is fading and crumbling. And in this beautiful and I think genius, pastorally genius way, he says in verse 27, a person cannot receive one thing unless it is given him from heaven. In other words, here's what he's saying. Because this is what, what, what drives jealousy in you or me. 
like this past weekend for me. What drives my insecurity sometimes and my jealousy is I look at the gifts of other people. And I look at the giftedness of other folks. And I look back at myself and I think, if I could only be like them. Or if my group could only be like theirs. Or if my personality, like, raise, don't really raise your hand, but raise your hand if you hate your personality and would gladly change your Myers-Briggs and your Enneagram or whatever test you take. Yes, please. But I, yeah, yeah, I see that hand. But it's driving their insecurity and their jealousy. And, and John, in this beautiful way, says, that person didn't give themselves those gifts. That person didn't make them, give themselves that personality. That person didn't give themselves those resources or that giftedness. That that all comes from heaven. Uh, years ago, so the only piece of like sports memorabilia that I've ever really had growing up is my dad one time went on this trip to San Antonio and uh, came back with this signed uh, picture of David Robinson. If you remember David Robinson, he was like the old the OG of the Spurs. Uh, he kind of mentored Tim Duncan, and when the Spurs were a thing, David Robinson was a huge part of that. And so I kind of had this affinity for David Robinson. I remember buying you know, David Robinson's shoes when I was playing Little League uh, Church basketball. Like he was kind of, I, I loved him. He, I loved his game. But you, a couple years ago, it was a Hall of Fame, NBA Hall of Fame induction, and David Robinson was being inducted the same day as Michael Jordan was. And it was fascinating, this, this blogger, it's RFP, was looking at those speeches and just kind of doing some analysis of them. So I went back and I read this blog post and I was looking at the speeches and they were vastly different. David Robinson's was like about 10 minutes long and literally start to finish, he just thanked every single person in his life. Like he started with his parents, he went back to his first basketball coach, he thanked his you know, YMCA coaches, he thanked his college, high school coaches, college coaches, he thanked uh, Pop, you know, by, by the time Pop got to the Spurs, he thanked his teammates, Duncan, Avery Johnson, he thanked, he just, his speech was, thank you, 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 and then he stepped off the podium. Jordan's on the other hand, whatever you think of Jordan, incredible basketball player, we can have that conversation. That day he did not nail it. I mean, he goes on, you can find this on YouTube, both speeches. He goes on for, I mean, truly almost an hour. And from start to finish, it was pretty impressive, the levels of pettiness. Like, I aspire to that level of petty. I mean, he just went back and critiqued every person he could possibly critique. That didn't give him a chance, that cut him from the team, that didn't believe in him. He trashed him. Dean Smith, I'm like, you can't trash him, Dean Smith. Then he trashes on Scottie Pippen. He trashes Phil Jackson. He trashes everybody. Even his kid, at one point he treasures his kids. I was like, oh, all right, my friend. And, and this guy made this, this point. He said, if you were to fast forward the David Robinson speech, it sounded like, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And if you could fast forward the Jordan speech, it sounded like, I, 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 me, me, me. And then he made the point when be like Mike was still a thing and a phrase. He said, don't be like Mike, be like David. And I think part of what John is inviting us to is that humility that on that day David Robinson sort of embodied of everything is a gift. That everything, every gift, every gifted part of yourself, of your intellect, of your emotional and social ability, that everything comes to you from your Heavenly Father. And that begins to eat away at the foundations of jealousy. And it begins to give us that freedom of humility which brings joy. I'll never forget going, so I've worked with RUF, this is year 12, going on 13, 
I'll never forget my first staff training. Staff training, we do it twice a year. Uh, it used to be in the summer in Atlanta, and then in December, now it's in Denver. It used to be in Dallas. But my first one, I remember going, and they were offering breakout seminars, and the seminar was called Growing Groups. And I thought, yep, that's the one I'm going to because I'm about to come into Georgia Southern and change this thing, and I need some tips. I need some tips and techniques to kind of make my group the most BA on campus. So I show up to this group, and much to my shock, the group was basically, hey, we have nothing to offer you in terms of how to grow your group. This group is for, <laughs> this group is for campus ministers who find their groups growing and can't really explain it, and so we're going to kind of talk about it and commiserate with it. And I was like, what am I doing with my life? What is this ministry that radically believes in God's sovereignty? I don't understand it. And I, but it was so freeing. Because they were saying to me in that one little moment, Sammy, you've got it all wrong. That God is the one who gives these gifts. God is the one who gives the growth. Which is why Paul does that thing in his, in his epistles where he says, listen, I watered and Apollos reaped, but it was God that gave the growth. And, he, and John is saying that's part of true, true humility. That's why Jesus, if you remember the story in Luke 10, because this is huge for us. Because we're, our temptation is to find our identity. Our temptation is to find our worth. In being successful. And what that means is being perceived in the eyes of the world as a success. Not being perceived in the eyes of Jesus and what he like values in the Sermon on the Mount, which is hard and anti what our culture defines as success, but define it in what our world deems as successful. Which is why Jesus, you remember that passage in Luke 10 where his disciples go out on one of those first missions where they're really bringing the gospel to bear in the towns and the people around them. And they come back to Jesus because they cast out a demon. And they're like so pumped up and kind of full of themselves. They're like, Jesus, you'll never believe what happened. We, we didn't just preach the gospel. We cast out a freaking demon. And Jesus says, truly, he says, yeah, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And then he says, what does he say? Do you remember? He says, do not rejoice in this. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. But rejoice in that your name's are written in heaven. There's a letter that I love from old school, uh, not Puritan, English pastor John Newton. He wrote it to his pastor friend, John Island. Here's how we put it. I love it. I'm going to read it. It's in your handout. They're commiserating about ministry and the difficulty of it. Here's what he says to him, his advice. He says, I hope your soul prospers. I do not ask you if you are always filled with sensible comfort, but do you find your spirit more bowed down to the feet and will of Jesus? So as to be willing to serve him for the sake of serving him and to follow him, as we say, through thick and thin. And I love the way he says this, to be willing to be anything or nothing so that he may be glorified. I could give you plenty of good advice upon this head, but I'm ashamed to do it because I so poorly follow it myself. And then he says, and I think this is the heartbeat of joy. I want to live with him by the day to do all for him, to receive all from him, to possess all in him, to live all to him, to make him my hiding place and my resting place. And this is the second question for us. Is are you content with the gifts that God has given you and with the place that he's called you? Are you content with where God has put you right now and the way he's made you and formed you? So first, we've got to repent of our jealousy. Second, we've got to rest in his sovereignty. And the last thing I want you to see is we have to rejoice in his glory. We have to rejoice in his glory. This is where the imagery kind of starts to change. It goes from a little bit comical to a little bit serious. 
And the image that changes that John gives is the image of the bridegroom and the best man. Now, what you have to understand the way that John sees himself is the best man in that day was different than the best man that we choose. Like I chose my best friend on my wedding day and it was really fun. I was glad he was there, but he did nothing to help on our wedding day. Like he didn't prevent me from going to the tanning bed that one fateful day. He didn't, you know, do anything. He didn't lift a finger, you know, on our wedding day. And that's how best men typically are. They just kind of show up and all we're saying is, man, this guy is close to me. Maybe it's your dad, whatever it is. Back in John's day, it was different. The bridegroom was, it was actually pretty in charge of how things went. So he was making arrangements. He was setting things up. He was hiring the caterer. He was making sure things ran smoothly. And this is what John the Baptist is saying about the way he sees himself. And again, this is a key to joy. And so he's saying, my job, my calling is to put the spotlight on the bridegroom. Because it would be weird if on my wedding day, my best man had been like, been like scoot over, man, this is my day. I'm going to take these vows real quick. I'm going to marry your wife real quick. That would have been weird. And John is saying, I know my role. My role is to set things up in a way where people can fall in love with Jesus. Which is why John says, the most freeing words he says in this passage that we need to know. Like this is, I don't care what scripture you've memorized. I'm glad if you memorize scripture. Pound it. This is the one I want you to memorize. I am not the Christ. I am not the Christ. Because some of us live like we are. Either in selfish indulgence and pleasure, like everyone exists to serve us, or like we need to do, like we need to be the Messiah, that our job is to save and fix people, which we are not capable of. I am not the Christ, and instead, I am the best man. I'm setting people up to fall in love and to know and follow Jesus. In other words, this passage has these beautiful overtones from Isaiah 62. This is the only, like, people sometimes ask, do you have a, a, a life verse? You know, have you ever asked this, been asked this question? You get it as a pastor sometimes, like, what's your life verse? And I'm like, all of them? I don't know. This is the one, if I had to choose, I would choose, because it's the one I'll never forget driving home from campus back to Sumter, passing, if you've ever been on Shop Road, going home towards Sumter. It was right before, it still is right before Doc's Barbecue. It was a sign on the side of the road that just said Hepzibah. It's like a church sign. And I was like, what in the heck is Hepzibah? So I went home, got out my Strong's Concordance, which none of you have ever heard of probably before iPhones, and like looked up Hephzibah. And it took me to Isaiah 62.4, where God says this. You shall be called, talking to his people, you shall be called Hephzibah. And what it means is, the Lord delights in you. For the Lord delights in you. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. My favorite, I've done a lot of weddings. That's one of my perks as a campus minister. And my favorite thing to do is a little bit weird. Uh, everyone, when the bride comes in, you know, the doors open and eyes rightly fix on the bride. You know, there's no such thing as a, an ugly bride. The bride is always beautiful and radiant. But I love to like take that in for a second and then not, not in a creepy way and then look at the bridegroom and just look at his face. I did a wedding one time in Rock Hill where it was the most beautiful and awkward thing. The guy just, I mean, I, he could not stop crying. Like he was just, joyful tears were streaming. And it was like, all right, man, hey, let me rub your back for a second. It's going to be okay. It's a beautiful thing. All right, let's go. But the thing is, you, the, the bridegroom's face 
typically, is beaming. That this woman would give herself to him. Years ago, I was uh, watching with my kids. I have four kids. They're grown now. Pray for me. Two or two or teenagers. When they were little, one of their favorite is, is October. We're getting close. I have a wife who, about the middle of October, or probably just after Halloween, to be honest, the Christmas stuff starts rolling. And so some of you hate that. I kind of hate that. Sometimes I wish they made like a Lexapro for wives who love Christmas. <laughs> and they don't. They do make Lexapro, though, which is a gift. Um, but I do love Christmas movies. Home Alone's my all-time favorite. One, not two. Two is garbage. We could talk about it. Three is, is anyways... But I love, the one that I love is a little weird that maybe none of you have seen, maybe you've seen it, is Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. It's that old claymation that's like not well done, but strangely compelling in its own way. So I'm with my kids, they're, they're toddlers at the time, we're watching Rudolph, and I hadn't seen it in probably 15 years. I mean, it had been since I was a kid. We're watching it, and we get to that part, and I can't even remember if it's before Rudolph gets to Misfit Island or if it's after. I'm not sure, but it's clear that Rudolph has been bullied pretty aggressively, and he's not you know, exactly on his game. He's feeling a little insecure, which I relate to. But then, you remember that scene where he meets Clarice? And I can't remember if he meets her when she says it, but you remember the scene where he's around Clarice, and Clarice basically says, Rudolph, you're cute. And you remember Rudolph kind of does that thing where he starts like prancing around. He's like, I'm cute, I'm cute. She thinks I'm cute. <laughs> Just bear with, bear with me. I'm going somewhere. I remember legit having this moment, call it whatever you want to call it, a prompting, the, Lord, the spirit being at work. But the question that kind of just enveloped me was basically this. Sammy, what do you, what do you think... It was like the voice of God. What do you think I think of you? And I remember just like the waterworks started. Because it's more than that you're cute. It's that you are beloved. That God could not love you more. That you are delighted in. You are rejoiced and sung over. That the Father loves you so deeply he gave his only Son. And that Jesus loves you so deeply he gave his only life. And he did that because of the way he feels about you. And John is saying, friends, don't be jealous of the ministry of Jesus. That's where your joy is found. In being loved and known and delighted in by him. And I think that's why he has the freedom to say... He must increase, and I must decrease. You know, we talk about that. If you've been around the Christian world a lot, this is like one of the most... Sometimes we use this verse to shame each other. It's amazing how Christians can use the Bible to shame one another. But I want you to think about it for a second. Do you you understand why John has the freedom to say that? He's saying, guys, this is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. This is the one who had everything infinitely and eternally. And he came down and made himself nothing. That you and I might have everything that we've ever longed for and needed, our sins to be forgiven, to be known and loved forever. That he made himself, he who is everything made himself nothing, that we might have everything. He who was rich became poor, that through him we might become rich. He decreased 
that you and I might increase, that our joy might increase, that our life, Jesus says, I came, you might have life and life abundant. And John is saying, that's how you can say he must increase and I, he must increase and I must decrease. When you know how loved you've been by Jesus, when you know how he decreased that you might increase. I'll close with this. There's a, one of my favorite quotes is uh, from a guy, Donald Miller, who used to write a lot. And he said this, I'll close with this. He said, the biggest lie that I've ever had to contend with is that life is a story about me. The biggest lie I've ever had to wrestle with and contend with is that life is a story about me. And friends, I've, we've lived that. We still struggle to live that. And I think if you were to be honest, you can say that does not lead to joy. And we can also at the same time say the biggest truth from this passage that we can say, the biggest truth that we have to find comfort and joy in is that life is a story about Jesus. And we're part of it. We're that bride that Jesus rejoices in and delights in. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you decrease, that we might increase. We thank you that you came all the way down to us, um, that you might take away our shame, take away our sin, and to give us life and life to the fullest. And Lord, I pray for those of us who have found that, have known that, you've pursued us, you've made us your own, would you restore to us the joy of our salvation. And Lord, for those of us who... Uh, maybe are so skeptical of this whole deal that we are still not sure what to make of you, that you would be the one who reveals yourself and all of your grace and your glory to us. We pray these things for Christ in your name. Amen. We're going to close by standing and singing the doxology. I'm going to kick us off. Help me, please. Praise God from the blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, Thanks so much for coming to our I hope we see you next week.